me ask you to take your Bibles and open to Hebrews chapter 5. <clears throat> we are continuing in our uh, look through the book of Hebrews, particularly how it deals with the issues in our lives. And uh, we have sung a lot tonight about giving God glory and honor. And the problem with the Hebrew believers was that they were about to bail out on their faith. Persecution had come and adversity had come and they were beginning to think, maybe it's not worth it. Maybe we will leave these synagogue worship experiences with other believers and go back to the original synagogues and let's just forget this whole thing because it's gotten a little tough. And so the writer of Hebrews writes to tell them, don't let that happen to you. Don't back off. Don't quit. Don't give up. Don't walk away from all the things that God has done in your life. So I want to ask us to pray tonight because there may be somebody in this room tonight that is in danger of walking away. You're just kind of holding on by a string and you're thinking, I don't know. I don't know if it's worth it. I don't know if it's worth it to be committed and I, and I know that's a strange thing to say to a Sunday night crowd on Mother's Day, but uh, still... There's always that temptation that the devil puts in us. Maybe it's not worth it. So I want us to pray. Pray for folks that you may know who are in danger of walking away in their faith from what God has called them to do and to be. So let's pray together. Father, we ask you in the name of Jesus Christ that we would never do anything that would bring shame and dishonor to the cross of Calvary. Lord, may we be crucified with Christ, learning anew every day what all that means. Lord, dying to self is a difficult thing to do. It's hard to crawl up on that altar and be a living sacrifice for you every day. It's impossible without the empowering of your Holy Spirit. So, Father, I pray that you'd take these words tonight and that you would speak to our heart and encourage somebody who may be discouraged and help us to see where we turn when we are faced with the opportunity to walk away, how we can turn again to the cross. In Jesus' name, amen. In the 1940s, Charles Templeton was a peer of Billy Graham. In fact, he was a roommate of Billy Graham's. Many people who knew Charles Templeton said that he was probably sharper, wiser, more gifted, and more talented than Billy Graham. But over the course of the few years following their college experience, Charles Templeton began to denounce Christianity and denounce his faith. In fact, he began to write books which are in print today denouncing the Christian faith, his premise being in his latest book called Farewell to God. The reason that I know that God is not real is because there is so much suffering in the world. In his book, The Case for Faith, Lee Strobel interviewed Mr. Templeton, who is now well up into his 80s. At the end of that interview, when the tape recorder was off, the interview was officially over. I want you to listen to the words of a man who walked away from God 
in his 30s and for 50 years has written books denouncing the Christian faith and denouncing the church and denouncing Christ, I want you to listen to what he said just in a one-on-one conversation. He said, everything good I know, everything decent, everything pure, I learned from Jesus. And if I may put it this way, I miss him. I miss him. For some reason, Mr. Templeton is either no longer able or no longer willing to come back to God. Although he will admit that he misses that relationship that he had with Jesus, he is unwilling or unable to come back to that faith in God. You see, there is a great deal of difference between wondering about why God lets things happen and wandering from God when things happen. All of us wonder about things when they happen, but there's a lot of difference between that and wondering about it. God, why did this happen? And wandering away from God when it happens. And you have to ask yourself the question, Why do so many people, when they have problems and when they have obstacles in their life, when they have adversity in their life, turn their back on God? Why is it that they have professed faith in Christ, professed a relationship with Him, and and they see in the midst of their problems nothing else to do except to blame God for their problems? While on the other hand, some people in the midst of their problems turn to God even more and get more serious in their faith with God. Well, the first thing I want us to see as we look at Hebrews is that there is a peril of falling away. A peril of falling away. Verse 4 of chapter 6. And we're not going to get into real in-depth in this because this is one of the most debated and discussed passages in all of Scripture about what these verses mean. I'm going to try to give you a little highlight of what I think it might mean, but I want to deal with it in the context of people who walk away from God. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened, now remember, before we go any further, remember he's writing to Hebrew Christians. He's writing to people who have been enlightened before they came to Christ. They were enlightened as Jews. They knew the history of God. They knew about Jehovah. They knew about the miracles. These were not converted pagans from false religions. These were enlightened people who had seen the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. For the case of those who had once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucified to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. Now there's a difference between falling and falling away. David fell into sin, but David came back. This idea of falling away is much more serious, and it is not the word in the original Greek language, it is not the word for apostasy. This word means to fall beside or to fall alongside, to go into a ditch, to get off track, to to blow it, to just move out of the direction that you and I are supposed to be going. It it means to move sideways, not making any 
further progress. And so the writer of the Hebrews is saying that these people have fallen by the side. Now remember, let's go back and review again. He started out by talking about drifting in chapter 2. Then he talked about how we uh, get hard in our hearts. Then he talked about how we become spiritually deaf. Now he's talking about falling away. There's a, a progression of going backwards here. Drifting, hardening our hearts, becoming spiritually deaf, and then ultimately we're falling away. He's warning us all through this book that once you start drifting, the end result is you will fall away. Once you get your eyes off Jesus, once you take your eyes off the cross, that you will begin to drift away from God, then you'll harden your hearts, you'll know something's wrong in your life, you won't do anything about it. Then you'll become spiritually deaf, you know what was said, but you're not going to pay attention to it, and all of a sudden you've fallen away, you've blown it. You're not, you're not there anymore. You're not walking with God anymore. It is used in Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 17 to refer to the Israelites who fell in the wilderness. Now, what had happened to the Israelites? They fell. They had, been, had a dramatic deliverance from Egypt. They had seen the miracles of God, tasted of the miracles of God. They had been partakers of what God was doing, but they fell by the wayside. Why? They quit believing God. They quit trusting God. They began to blame God instead of believing God. They began to point fingers at God's servant, Moses, and they said, you know, you're the reason we're in this mess. After all they had seen, they said, this is not good anymore. We want to go back to Egypt. What the writer of Hebrews is doing is he's picking up that imagery and he's saying, that can happen to you as a believer. God can have a dramatic conversion experience in your life or a dramatic encounter with God. You could partake of the blessings. You could see miracles. You could hear great testimonies. You could see God work in dramatic, incredible ways and still get to a point in your life where you say, I don't want to trust him anymore. I don't want to do that anymore. Now, how many of you know somebody that two years ago was active in church that's not active anymore? How many of you know somebody? You think that they ever saw God do anything in their life? You think they ever heard of a miracle? You think they ever heard a great testimony? You ever think they were in a service where God stirred their hearts? But something happened in their lives. They began to drift, and then they got hard-hearted, and then they got deaf to the Word of God, and now they've fallen away, and you can't get them back. The FBI doesn't even know where they are, just like the records for Tim McVeigh. They don't know where anything is. And it's just lost. Why? What happened? They didn't pay attention. They didn't pay attention to what God was trying to do in their life. They were enlightened. They tasted. They partook. But they blew it. Now, watch what it says in verse 6. It is impossible to renew them again to repentance. Now, one of the important things about this phrase is there is nothing there stated about what God can do. There, this is not a statement about what God can do, can do or cannot do in their life. What he's saying is this is a statement of human nature. It is impossible to renew them again to repentance. He didn't say it's impossible to renew them to salvation. He said it's impossible to renew them to repentance. And I think there's a quote there by Jimmy Draper in your notes. When we turn away from God, when we rebel against him and refuse to hear his voice, when we refuse to do what is the plain will of God for our lives, there is a collapse of our ability 
to repent. Not God's ability, but our ability. Not God's willingness, but our willingness. Now, let's imagine that somebody knows God, has a problem, has pressure, has a trial, and they back away. They give up. They drop out of church. They blow their witness. It is not because they are ignorant that they do that, because they have tasted, they have been enlightened, they have been partakers. It is not because they're ignorant that they do that. It is simply because they are resistant that they do that. Now, here's a statement that you need to remember. The one who will choose to walk away will also choose not to repent. The one who will choose to walk away will also choose not to repent. In other words, if a person gets to the point where they've drifted and where they've become hard-hearted and they've become spiritually deaf and they have fallen away from God, they've gone by the wayside in their faith, they've cast aside their testimony, if they'll get to that point, if they choose to get to that point in their life, and that is a choice, then they will also choose to not repent. That's why people can go to church for years and then quit and then you can't ever get them back in. Why? Because they've chosen not to. They've chosen not to repent. It, the thought of repenting never enters their mind. So this is not so much a rejection of Christ's salvation as it is. He's writing to these Hebrews who are undergoing pressure and persecution. And he is saying to them, you're rejecting the sufficiency of Christ to meet every need in your life, to meet you at the point of your need, to meet you in your hurt, to meet you in this time of persecution. You're rejecting God's sufficiency for your life. You see, it's one thing for us to sin. It's another thing for us to bring shame to Jesus. It's one thing for us to have a sin and we confess and we, God forgives us and we move on from it. It's another thing for us to make some choices in our lives where we drift away from God and ultimately fall away from God and we bring the name of Jesus to public ridicule. And that happens all the time. And so the second thing we need to look at is that problems can push us toward a perilous response. Problems can push us toward a perilous response. Now, this is my humble and accurate opinion, which I highly respect. I think a lot of people that we think are Christians or have said at some point that they are Christians and they drop out or they quit, I think based on the New Testament, they never were saved in the first place. They had an emotional experience. They came down and joined a church. They got baptized. They got religion, but they didn't get saved. Because salvation is a life-changing experience. It changes us from the inside. And when we are saved, the Holy Spirit of God comes to live inside of us. You know, you remember the passage where it says that he left us, but he wasn't part of us? You see, I, I'm not so sure that everybody that says they're saved is saved. Now, let's just do a little informal survey. This, this is official. If you ever ask more than ten people... It's a nationwide survey. You know that, don't you? ABC News does that all the time. So, you know, if you ever want to do a nationwide survey, just ask 10 people. 
because they all came from somewhere else. So this, how many of you think that everybody that says they're saved is saved? Okay, we have a unanimous vote. Not everybody that says they're saved is saved. Now what does that mean? That means that a lot of people come into a church under a false pretense. Don't you know that in the excitement of that early church when people were being saved and lives were being changed? Go back to the book of Acts. People wanted to jump on the bandwagon. People wanted to get in on the show. People wanted to be a part of the miracles. People wanted to be a part of what was happening. Don't you know that not everybody that was there was saved? Do you remember in Luke chapter 14 where Jesus turned and you notice what it says in Luke 14? He turned to his disciples and he gave them the cost of discipleship. And it says, and many left him that day. Now they were disciples, they were learners up to a point. But they weren't willing to go to the cross. They weren't willing to die to themselves. They weren't willing to forsake all and follow him. They weren't willing to die daily. They weren't willing to, to, to give of themselves wholly to the gospel. They were just interested and curious because he had given them bread. And it is a tragedy in the church today that people have problems and they drop out when the very place you ought to be when you're having problems is in the church where you can get help. Now, go back to verse 7 of chapter 5. I mean, you hear people say, well, you just don't know what I'm going through. Well, take them to Hebrews 5, 7. In the days of his flesh he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death and he was heard because of his piety. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. Now, Jesus was suffering. This is a reference to the Garden of Gethsemane. We talked about that before. Now, turn to Hebrews 10. Hebrews chapter 10. Because the writer of Hebrews is building a case here. He says, not only do we have the example of our Lord Jesus about how he dealt with suffering and how he learned through obedience to deal with suffering, we have the example among ourselves, among other believers. Hebrews 10, verse 32. But remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. In other words, they identified with people who were undergoing persecution and trouble. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward." Now, he talks there about a great conflict. He says in chapter, three, in chapter 5, Jesus had problems, endured problems, obeyed God through his problems. In chapter 10, you've done it. Now you jump back to chapter 6, don't stop. Don't stop following God just because you've gone too far, you've overcome too many things. And so when somebody says, well, I just don't think God cares about me, there's always a believer sitting somewhere close to them who has gone through a similar circumstance and says, yes, God cares about you. I've been there, I've done that, I know what that's like, and I'm telling you God's sufficient for that need. 
And so he's saying, don't lose your confidence. Now, he gives us three areas of conflict. First of all is pain. They were undergoing pain. Painful situations, persecution, things were happening. Number two, people. He talks there about reproaches and tribulations. This would simply be man's inhumanity to man. And then he talks about property, the seizure of your property. These people were worried about their finances. They were worried about their future. The government was taking over their property. And in any of these three areas, in pain with people persecuting you or with the seizure of your property, you can blame God and blow your witness. There's always the opportunity when pain comes into your life, when people attack you or when something happens to your possessions that you and I can begin to blame God and say, God's not fair, God's not just, God's not right. If God loved me, this wouldn't be happening to me. And so let's go to the third thing. Problems can push us to Jesus. Now what do we have to do in problems? We have to look beyond the moment and look to the eternal. Look beyond the moment and look to the eternal. We have to quit looking at the problems and see beyond them the Christ. And so what do you do? First of all, you follow the example of Jesus. Turn to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. You follow the example of Jesus. Ron Dunn preached this morning at MacArthur Boulevard. In fact, he's preaching tonight, the second part of it. Philippians chapter 3. That I may know him, the power of his resurrection, and what? The fellowship of his sufferings. You know what we want? We want the power of his resurrection without the fellowship of his sufferings. We'd like God to give us resurrection power to live a victorious life. But what does a victorious life imply? It implies battles. That you're, that you're in a battle, that you're facing problems, that there are obstacles in your way. You know, it's a lot easier to preach about the joy of the resurrection than it is about the fellowship of his sufferings. But look at the example of Jesus. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. Fixing our eyes on Jesus. Now, where most Americans read that is fixing my eyes on my problems, my pain, the people who are hurting me, or my property being taken away from me. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. Now, two things I want to say, and they're not in the notes. This is not the two things in the notes, okay? So don't, don't try to fill out the notes right now. This is not it. First thing is, I want you to notice the phrase, for the joy set before him. Now, many commentators say that that phrase means he looked out over eternity and realizing that all the people that would be saved, he endured the cross because he knew that by enduring the cross, he would be saved. People would be saved and lives would be changed. And that is a part of the meaning of this word. But I want you to see another thing. This is something Ron taught me this week. I'm glad I waited two weeks to preach this message. 
that little participle for. Here's what it means. For the joy set before him means that God the Father, in essence, showed Jesus everything he had. All the joy before him, all the glory being given him, all the praise being given him, all the honor being given him, all the angels surrounding him to serve him at his every whim and at his every need. And God the Father said, this is all that you've got and you don't ever have to leave it. And Jesus said, I saw it, I knew what I had, and I gave it up for the cross. Now, if he can do that, we can endure whatever we have to endure. If he can look around at perfection, at glory and at honor, and know that he didn't have to do anything, then we can endure a few things for his sake. And so he says, for the joy set before him. And then that little verse, verse 4, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. I, I remember one time, I, I don't know if you've ever done this, I've done this. I went to find somebody I thought was spiritual and to tell them, you know, all my, I was, giving a, I was having a pity party. So this was when I was in Oklahoma back in youth ministry in 1900, none of your business, and... and uh, and uh, I, I went down, I sat, sat down with Max Barnett, who's the BSU director at University of Oklahoma. And I mean, we were in a church. It was, I mean, they, it was just bad. It was, it was a bad church full of... I, I remember one night Joe Estes prayed for the roof to fall in, and it's the only time I wish God had answered that prayer. But, uh, you know, I mean, it was just awful. It was absolutely as bad a church as I've ever seen. I mean, if God had blown it up, it would have done the whole world a favor. And, you know, so I, I, you know, I, I was tired and, and I was weary and I was tired of hearing all this yeah, yeah, and going on and people griping and, you know, wanting to know if we'd spent $3 on this and $5 on that and business meetings going four and a half hours. I was sick of it. I was new in the ministry. It's my first full-time church. So I decided Max Barnett's a godly man. I'll go sit down and talk to him. So I go sit down in his office. He said, well, Michael, what can I do for you? So I just, I, you know, I spill the beans. I'm just letting it, I'm, I'm just, it's just flowing. He just sits there. I notice he's not saying anything. And he says, finally, after about 20 minutes of me venting, he says, uh, you through? And I said, yes. He said, take your Bible and open it up to Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 4. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. He said, anybody nailed you to a cross yet? Uh, felt like it. <laughs> anybody driven nails in your hands yet? No. Anybody beaten you beyond recognition? No. And get your eyes off your problems and get your eyes on Jesus. I'll tell you, it was a wake-up call for me. Have you ever noticed how we as Christians love to talk about our problems? And the writer of Hebrews keeps coming back and saying over and over and over, fix your eyes on Jesus. Get your eyes on Jesus. Don't get your eyes on your problem. Get your eyes on Jesus. The author and perfecter of faith. If Jesus can do that, I can endure. And so he faced two problems. Number one was the cross. Verse 2. 
cross is not a piece of jewelry, we understand the significance of the cross. Number two, the hostilities by sinners against himself. He faced the hostility by sinners against himself. Now, how did he deal with these two problems? He prayed. Go back to verse 7 of chapter 5. How did Jesus deal with this enduring the cross? How did he deal with this offering up prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death? And he was heard because of his piety. There are three things that I want you to see. First of all, he prayed with the right attitude. He didn't go talk to all his friends and try to get somebody to agree with him. He submitted his prayers to God. He prayed with the right attitude. Secondly, he prayed to the right person, the one who could save him from death. He prayed to the right person. You see, man may not can help you out of your problem, but God can. You don't need to quit too soon because God hasn't had the last word yet. He prayed to the right person, and then thirdly, he got his prayer. He got the right answer. He was heard. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered, and having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. He was hurt, maybe not in the way that he wanted to in his man, but as God, he completed everything he came to do. Now, first of all, you follow the example of Jesus. Secondly, you discover the power of obedience. Verses 8 and 9, obedience and salvation are inseparable. Now, I don't know if this is in your notes or not, but this is another statement you need to remember. Problems will either lead you to seek him or to sour on him. Problems will either lead you to seek him or to sour on him. You know, some of the sweetest people I know are people who have been through one problem after another. And some of the meanest people I know are people who seem to always be able to avoid problems. Problems will either sweeten you or they will sour you. And if you fix your eyes on Jesus, you will see Jesus in the midst of your problems. Let me tell you something. You're always going to find somebody that's going through a worse situation than you are. And you're always going to be better off than somebody else. So let's not get in a comparison contest with our problems and think, oh, you just don't know what I'm going through. You know, every time I think I've got a problem, I think about Ron and Kay Dunn. I mean, how'd you like to not be able to preach from September until May? Not sure you'll ever get to preach again. The doctors tell you they cannot repair what's been done and damaged, and in the middle of that, you find out your wife got an aggressive form of cancer, and she's been taking care of you, and now she's on massive chemo treatments because they're trying to deal with it. And on top of that, she can't go to the hospital because she's exposed to things, so she can't go see her daughter who's had her leg amputated. So the next time you're hearing somebody whining about they've got a cold, tell them to get a life. You see, there's always somebody that's got a different problem. I was on a computer this week, and I, I, I've got instant message, so I knew when Ron came on. And so I said, Ron, how are you doing today? He said, we're doing great. I sat there at the computer and just shook my head and said, we're doing great? 
we're doing great. I, I'm sorry. And so I ask again. No, really. We're doing fine. God's grace is sufficient. And you see what happens to some of us? Something happens, we get bad news, and we go off into a ditch. And when we do that, and when we shake our fist at God, and when we blame God, and when we cry out to God and say, this is unfair, and when we, when we bring ridicule to the cross of Christ, we've done damage to the kingdom that cannot be reversed. You see, we are to be examples of how God helps us to overcome our situations. We're not exempt from problems. We want God to fix our problems and to take them away. We're not exempt from them, but God is gracious in the middle of them. So what's the result of learning to obey God? Number one, you'll be diligent. You'll be diligent. When you and I learn to obey God, chapter 6, verses 11 and 12, the, the opposite of being diligent is to be sluggish. You're diligent to hear. You're diligent to receive. You're diligent to obey. You're diligent to do whatever God wants you to do. You're diligent to honor God. Now, I'm not talking about when you have problems ignoring them or pretending them that they're not there or trying to praise them away. I'm just saying deal with them realistically, but deal with them in the light of the cross and in the light of the grace of God on your life. Don't talk about them as if you have no hope. Or if you have no peace, or you have no comforter, or you have no prayers, deal with them in the reality of what all you've been given and be diligent to keep your focus. Number two, you'll exercise faith and patience. You see, the context of this in chapter 6 and verse 12 is, is that we are to put our faith into practice. Patience here is more accurately interpreted long-suffering. Long-suffering. Number three, you'll inherit the promises. If you blow it and fall away, you'll miss the blessing. You'll inherit the promises. And number four, you'll be blessed to the level of your obedience. You'll be blessed to the level of your obedience. In every one of our lives, there comes a moment, there comes a time, there comes a test. When the devil slips up behind us, if we've not maintained our focus on Jesus and says, like Job's wife, why don't you just curse God and die? Why don't you just shake your fist at God and die? Just get it over with. You see, it is in those crisis moments that reveal if we've been drifting away, if we've been hardening our hearts, if we've been tuning out God and not listening to Him. And when you fall away, listen, falling away is never instantaneous. It's a long, drawn-out process. Sometimes it happens to teenagers. The older they get in their teenage years, what they were faithful to as middle schoolers, they become less and less faithful until they get on up in high school, and then they leave the Lord in college. Sometimes it happens to adults. Sometimes it happens after your kids are grown and you're going through some kind of midlife crisis or something. 
But whatever it is, the devil will slip up on you at some point. If you don't stay focused and you're not listening and you're not obeying and you're not following God, the devil will slip up and he will begin to tell you that it's okay to coast for a while. And after coasting for a while, you'll begin to harden your heart because you see the Word of God can soften or it can harden like it did Pharaoh's heart. And after your heart gets hardened, then you go deaf spiritually. And once you've gone deaf spiritually, the next step is you're just going to go by the wayside. And you'll be another name on a church roll that never gets up and never goes anywhere. Have you ever thought about this? Everybody that lives by somebody that goes to a church that never gets up and goes to a church is witnessing every Sunday. My God's not important to me. What I say I profess, I do not believe. You see, the devil loves to get... If the devil can't steal your soul, he will steal your testimony. And he loves to get people that were once vital for Christ and now they blame God for their problems because he spreads that word. And just like Charles Templeton, one day if that happens to you, you may wake up either unwilling or unable to get back to God. But somewhere in a dark corner of your heart, you will have to admit, I miss him. I miss him. I've got friends that used to be in the ministry that are no longer in the ministry and they bring shame every day they live to the gospel of Jesus Christ. I've got friends that have walked away from God. I've got lay people I know that once served God faithfully and now they don't serve God anymore. And they bring shame to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Ladies and gentlemen, I think it's better to die than to live so long that you outlive your usefulness for God and your testimony. Better to not live to the point of bringing shame to the gospel than to live to the point where you bring shame to your friends, to your church family, to the people that you love, to your children, to your parents, to God. Because somewhere along the line, you started drifting away and quit listening. And sooner or later, it didn't matter anymore. Thank you for joining us for Path to Truth. If you would like to learn more about Sherwood Baptist Church here in Albany, Georgia, you can explore our website at www.sherwood-baptist.org. If you would like a copy of today's service, please send us your name and address to Path to Truth, 2201 Whispering Pines Road, Albany, Georgia, 31707. Once again, that's Path to Truth at 2201 Whispering Pines Road in Albany, Georgia, zip code 31707. If you're requesting a videotape of the service, please enclose $10 with your order. 
If you would like an audio tape of the pastor's message, enclose $3 with your order. Remember to include your name and complete address along with your telephone number and be sure to ask for the tape number that you see on the screen. We would enjoy hearing from you by mail or by phone. If you live or visit in the Albany area, we invite you to worship with us here at Sherwood. And we hope you'll join us next week at this time for Path to Truth from Sherwood Baptist Church.